Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it is wonderful to welcome back with us Rabbi Ronnie Tabak, who is the rabbi of New Stoke Newington Shul. He was ordained at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and he has a master's in ancient Judaism. Ronnie specializes in Talmud mysticism and Jewish mythology with a focus on the Leviathan and other sea monsters too. And I can't believe Rabbi Ronnie, that it has been now over a year since your last podcast with us, I think for Vayahi, where you spoke about werewolves. So perhaps as a link to this parasha, which we're exploring, bro, with you, perhaps the first question as the kind of tenuous link from where we last left off, which is really taken from an inspiration from your mythic writing on Yitro, which is, why is the God of the Bible portrayed as a storm God? Thanks, Simon. It's really a pleasure to be back here on the podcast, talking Torah, talking mythology, great loves of mine. Um, why is the God of the Bible portrayed as a storm God? Well, first of all, let me just back up that with some evidence that the God of the Torah is portrayed as a storm God. In our parasha of Yitro, the Torah is given amidst thunder and lightning, a dense cloud over the mountain, right? There's fire, there's smoke. It's absolutely terrifying. But that's not the only place where God is portrayed amidst fire, lightning, smoke, clouds. Perhaps the most striking and well-known of the texts would be Psalm 29, part of the Kabbalat Shabbat service, and therefore perhaps well-known to your listeners, where we talk about um, how the voice of God is over the waters, the voice of God's glory thunders, it shatters cedars, it makes the Lebanon leap like a calf, that the voice of God shakes the wilderness. It's God is described elsewhere as riding on the clouds. God emerges amidst thunder and lightning and storm. And if it was another religion, we would say this is a storm God. This is a storm god, if we were to further afield than the ancient Near East, like Zeus, like Thor, the storm gods of the ancient world. Closer to the ancient Near East, someone like Baal was a storm god, someone who fought monsters and brought with their lightning weapons. So why is the god of the Bible portrayed as a storm god? I think historically, probably that is the origins of our god. Back when we were polytheistic people and not before we became anything like monotheistic. We probably had a set of gods and one of them was a storm god and we liked that one. That's my guess of probably what happened. But I think it means a lot more than that. Why are storm gods popular? Why would that be the trope that captures the biblical author's imagination? It does a few things. First of all, storm gods are warrior gods. They defend us. They fight for us. They defeat the monsters of chaos. They see monsters like Baal fights against Lotan one of the great ancient primordial sea monsters. God fights against sea monsters, protects us from chaos, and brings order. We also see that storm gods are extremely popular. 
Thor was definitely more popular than Odin to the Norse people. And the reason is Odin, although Odin was the chief of the gods, was distant, foreboding, gloomy. But Thor was lovable. He helped people by fighting monsters, but he also brought the rain. Storm gods bring the rain, and the rain is what is needed for life. And so our God is associated with bringing rain when we are doing the right thing. When we follow God's commandments, that's when we get the rain. That's what brings fertility, life back to the world. And so God is a storm God because it combines two important aspects. One, God protects us, God fights for us. And secondly, God brings the rain, keeps us alive, keeps the cycle of fertility going. Wonderful. Thank you for such an all-encompassing introduction. And then maybe to hone in on what we've already touched upon, but the Torah is obviously given in the midst of a storm. And I wonder if you might share your thinking around why that might be. It's really interesting. It's a powerful moment, obviously one of the most powerful moments in the Bible. And many different traditions are woven together into the narrative that we have of Parashat Yitro. But they're all very dramatic. There's this fire and lightning and the voice of God going on and on. And it took me a while to figure out why I think that is the case. A few things, I think. Firstly, God's symbol of lightning and thunder is a symbol of God's power and therefore the authority which is backing up the Torah. The rabbis imagined the, uh, the mountain being turned upside down and God threatening us with the mountain. And I wonder if that's a version of the storm God imagery itself. God sends lightning and thunder, and there's a bit of a veiled threat there. This is my power. Listen to my Torah. Follow my instructions or else zap. I think there's a bit of a veiled threat there and a bit of God's power being made totally visible to the people so they can see what it is that they're getting into because that power can be turned on them but it also can be turned on their enemies i am your god i brought you out of egypt have no other gods but me and i will be on your side and you would rather be on the side of a god of such power than against a god of such power i think that's a lot of what's going on here but it's important to remember that the word torah which means teaching is related to the word yoreh, which is a kind of rain. My parents, uh, Rabbi Stavik, always taught me that yoreh is the kind of rain that lands on the earth, penetrates into the soil, and causes growth. And that's what the Torah is. The Torah is supposed to land on fertile ground, penetrate deep within us, and cause us to grow. And so it's that dual symbolism again, the power and the threat of God, but the fertility which the Torah is supposed to bring that connects this moment of revelation with God's storm God nature. Thank you for that Midrash on Midrash and also great to hear some Torah from your parents that you are channeling too. Only for maybe a light question now, as we really come to the pinnacle of which this partial certainly is, to what extent and in what way then were the people of Israel connected to God at Sinai, standing on one leg? <laughs> it's such a great question. I guess I should make clear that I don't know how historical an event Sinai was. My, my instinct is that probably it's not historical, which is to say 
I don't think it would be possible to get in a time machine if such a thing existed and teleport oneself back to Sinai and experience what the people experienced. I have doubts about that. And nothing nothing hinges on that question for me. And it doesn't matter to me that much whether it was historical. If we were to discover some evidence somehow that it was definitely a historical moment, great. I have doubts about it being historical. I don't really know what it would have looked like or how we would know if it really happened or not. But in a sense, none of that really matters. What matters to me is what does the Torah think happened? What do the rabbis think happened? What message are they trying to tell us through the stories as it's presented in the Torah and the rest of the Tanakh? And what does that mean for us today? So I'm not going to answer about what actually happened. What do I think really was the connection between the Jewish people and God? I think that maybe that will emerge from other things that I say. But but I'm not trying to answer a historical question, but a question within the text. So within the text itself, there's clearly a big gap between God and the people. God comes down to Mount Sinai. Moses is invited to go up Sinai, but the people are told to keep a distance. They're not allowed to touch the mountain. They're not allowed to get too close. If they get too close, they're going to die. Only Joshua is allowed to get close and Moses even above them. So in a sense, there's a great deal of distance. It's also the moment when God comes closest to them before the creation of the tabernacle, which is what we're going to get into, what we're going to get into starting in next week's parasha and onwards through the rest of the book of Exodus. That's the moment when God becomes closest. But so far, this is the moment of closeness between the Israelites and God. But this is supposed to be the moment when the Israelites hear God's voice. This is the moment when God speaks to them. What exactly they say, it's not What exactly God says to the people is not 100% clear. But this is the moment the Israelites hear God's voice. And it's clear that the Israelites are completely overwhelmed by this experience. They say to Moses, no, let God speak to you and we'll listen to you, but let not God speak to us again. This is too much. And at least for Parashat Yitzchel, that experience of being close to God, of hearing God's voice is completely overwhelming, unbearable, and the people can't cope with it. They have to have an intermediary to relay God's messages. Thank you and look forward to your time machine to answer perhaps one one strand of the question. And actually also perhaps look forward to planting a seed, but look forward to perhaps unpacking the approach to history at another at another point, but but plenty, plenty already to get on with for now. And again, obviously from a textual position, but when the children of Israel have then received the Ten Commandments, what could they actually hear? Yes, the Torah is extremely unclear on the subject. And even someone who approaches the Torah from a kind of source-critical angle, looking at different sources that have been woven together to create the text that we have, it's very difficult to try and sort the revelation out into different strands and to try and say, ah, this text thinks they saw X, Y, and Z, and this text thinks they saw A, B, and C. It's extremely difficult to sort it out, which makes me think that perhaps that approach is not terribly helpful when it comes to when it comes to the story of Revelation, that comes to the story of Sinai. And so the Torah says, that God spoke all these words saying, 
And then it begins the Ten Commandments. I am the eternal, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, a house of bondage, and goes on and explains what we would call the Ten Commandments. Later on, then the people say, that's enough. You speak to us. We don't want to hear God anymore. And the people remain at a distance and Moses goes forward. So it's not at all clear exactly what they heard. And this is much debated. There's the word that I've been describing as thunder is sometimes you Sometimes the word used in the Torah is kol, voice. Now, the question is, when those, when that thunder is coming, that kol, is that another moment of God giving words to the Israelites? Or is that God's voice in another sense, right? God's voice is the thunder. Is there information being given in that voice? Or is it just sound? Is it just a kind of roar? Or is it a content-filled revelation? It's not at all clear. The the rabbis disagreed about this. Some said that it teaches that they heard the entire Ten Commandments. For example, Mechil to Rabbi Yishmael seems to be of that opinion. In the Talmud, in the Babylonian Talmud, in Masechet Makot, they do a drush about the well-known verse, Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, that God, that Moses commanded us Torah. What does it mean that Moses commanded us Torah? They, the Gemara looks at the word Torah, does a lovely gematria on it, decides that it calculates that the number for Torah is 611. So we know that there are 613 commandments in the Torah. What does it mean that Moses commanded us 611, the number for Torah? It means that God commanded us the last two. In other words, God commanded us two of the commandments and the other 611 were were revealed by Moses. It's not just a clever play on numbers. It's actually quite a close reading of the text, because if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first two are in the first person. I, the eternal, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods but me. And a bit later, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the eternal God, am an impassioned God, and so on. But then it quickly switches to the third person. You shall not swear falsely by the name of the eternal, your God, for the eternal will not clear one who swears falsely by the divine name. It's no longer in the first person. Once we pass the first two commandments, the text switches to the third person. And the rabbis know that. And they can see that shift. And this midrash about the numbers is trying to back up why the text changes from the first person to the third person at the third commandment. That's one idea. Perhaps we only heard the first two commandments, which after all are the ones about God's identity. I am God who took you out of Egypt and have no other gods but me. It's about who God is. And those are the ones we heard from God directly. Very nice. I uh, personally, I've always enjoyed one of the Hasidic teachings, which which is taught in the name of Rabbi Mendel Torum of Rimanov. I learned this from my father, Rabbi Larry Tabak. And it's quoted by Professor Gershom Sholem, where he's where Rabbi Mendel Torah Marimanov teaches that it was actually only the first letter of the Ten Commandments that the people heard. Now, the first letter of the Ten Commandments is an Aleph. And as everyone knows, the letter Aleph doesn't really have a sound. It's a position your larynx get, gets to in your throat when you prepare to say a sound. You position your larynx in a certain spot and you're about to say something. That's the Aleph, which is to say that actually, what did the people hear? They didn't hear any sound. What they heard was 
the silence, the potential of God's speech, the moment just before God spoke. And that was too much. I think a lot about that, that the silence is sometimes too much to bear. The potentiality is too much to bear. That was what our ancestors struggled with. I think some of us still struggle with that, getting through that moment of silence where we're faced with ourselves, where we're forced to really listen to who we are, when we know something heavy is about to come. That can be quite a hard moment to live with. Thank you. We've perhaps already embarked on the next and perhaps final area of discussion. There are, whatever, whatever happened has certainly been a source of endless speculation and has resulted obviously in the outpourings of Midrash, commentary, theology, much of which you've already addressed. But I wonder, of all of the above, what is your pick of them? And with a focus on what is perhaps most relevant for us today. I think that the key to this, you know, what's the key element of the story of Sinai? The essence of it is that we heard God speak, that Torah comes from God, that we are obligated to serve God, and the essence of that comes from a direct revelation. The challenge around that is, if God is infinite and we are finite, how was that possible? How was it possible to bridge the gap between the infinite God and the human mind, which is limited and can only process so many things? Even when both my children are trying to speak to me at the same time, I can't listen to them. How can we process the infinite, which is God? There are rabbinic teachings. As I learned this from Ilana Kershan at the Conservative Yeshiva, who wrote about, about the voice of the Torah, that the Mechilta de Shirata teaches that all the Ten Commandments were de- delivered simultaneously in a single utterance. That the voice of God, that call, the voice of thunder, was really, in some ways, the entire Torah being downloaded in a single moment of noise. And the human brain just can't process that. So it's human it's the job of human beings to try and translate that and to turn that into something livable, to understand that the voice of God has to be processed through history because that's the only way human beings can work. God can deliver the entire Torah in a single instant, but human beings have to work it out over thousands and thousands of years, and we still haven't figured it all out. The rabbis say the voice of God is calling from Sinai. It's not past tense. The voice of God still calls from Sinai, and it's a question of tuning oneself into that wavelength to hear that voice, that moment of Torah where everything was downloaded to us and we're still trying to process it. I think that's important because as a Masorti rabbi, I very much believe that the Torah is holy and sacred. It contains the divine within it. But I also believe that Torah is supposed to unfold over time, that there is not words that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai, literally, that we could uncover. And that's the true kernel of Torah. And everything else has been layered on top of it. But that God speaks through human beings, that we have to process it over time. We necessarily will get it wrong sometimes, but that's part of the process. We've got to try to get back to that and reach the impossible, the infinite God. 
Rabbi Ronnie, what a crescendo and place to at least draw to a temporary close with you. It's been wonderful discussing with you. No werewolves this time, but... Shame, maybe next time. Look forward to that, but plenty to dwell on. And thank you for your your wonderful words of Torah and all the commentary midrash, of course, your parents too, that you brought with us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, do find out more about our exciting content that we have for you at our mothership, jewishquest.org. And we do, of course, look forward to meeting again next week.